This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the web at goodjudgepod.com. Hey, folks, this is Wade Paget, And this is Tane Kell. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. We are in the middle of a series that of episodes where we're going to talk about how you would try criminal cases from the perspective of the judge. And we've reached section seven. We're coming to the end of our trial. The The case has been, all the evidence has been presented. The, the jury, we've gone through the charge conference and the jury is ready to receive the charge. They've already heard the, I'm sure, scintillating closing arguments by both parties. And now we put an ice bucket back on the proceedings and take all the passion out of it while the judge reads a 28-page charge. But no, seriously, the charge from the judge's perspective is vitally important. You'll see a lot of cases reversed based upon the charges, and this is where you really need to be hyper alert during the process as the judge. And you should always try to sound like uh, Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments when you're when you're reading the charge. Do it in a, in a particularly uh, uh, dramatic voice. You know, we have a colleague who actually puts all the charges on a PowerPoint and the judge comes down to the, the floor and sort of presents them like a car dealer. Um, and, and to eat, and I don't mean that negatively. I mean, he's just trying to present them there at the, uh, in front of the jury to each his own as to how you make this interesting. I don't think it's possible, frankly, because you have to say certain words in a certain order and that's just the way it is. I will tell you one thing that I do, Wade. I don't tell them until after I've given them the charge that they will get a written copy of the charges in the jury room. Because if you tell them that, they just check out and say, oh, well, we'll have a copy of it in the jury room. Yeah, so, that's a good idea. Yeah, I've they been don't doing know that until the end. I've been doing it in the beginning. I think I'm going to have to change that. So after you've read this instruction, you must do that even if you're given written charges. You've gotten the alternates. You've finally identified the alternates as alternates, and you've kept them in a separate room. Then you need to make sure after the jury leaves the room that you receive any objections to the charge. In other words, don't receive them, go get them. If somebody, it, you go inquire of the parties if they have any objections. Don't wait on them to bring them to you. Yeah, you should always, even if you've gone over the uh, objections during charge conference, it's fine to uh, to do that on the record and allow people to incorporate whatever objections to a charge they've previously made. But even when that has been done, as Wade said, you should say, counsel, are there any additional objections or exceptions to the charge as given? Now, you you have gone through this whole process. You're pretty tired. You've read 28 pages and tried to make that interesting. The, the lawyers are tired. They've done their closings. The, the parties are, are anxious. Clue in here for one more minute in this trial because you need to make a record of what exhibits are going out to the jury. And you may say to yourself, well, all the exhibits, no, 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 no. Let's talk about some practical things. Then we'll talk about some law things. 
Judge Padgett does not allow the weapon and the ammo to be in the same room. I understand they would have to cut zip ties on this and, you know, do all these things. But I'm not going to allow both of those things to be in a room. I allow the knife, if it's a, it's something like that, to go into the jury room. But then I want it back. I want the the bailiff to let the jury look at it, let them look at it as long as they want to. They can look at it 20 times if they want to. But I'm not going to leave it in the room. I've seen 12 Angry Men. I don't want to see that on in the second murder in my jury. Then I'd have to declare a mistrial on this guy's murder and try that murder. And long story short, all seriousness, think about it. Don't leave the cocaine in the room. Don't, don't, you know, just, just think about what you're doing here. So let's talk about, that's the practical side. Let's talk about the law side. You want to talk a little bit about the continuing witness rule? Well, yeah. And, and what I was going to say about the, uh, the issue of what evidence goes in, the first thing that I make the lawyers do as soon as uh, they tell me there are no further objections to the charge is I say, okay, then come up to the bench and the clerk is going to go over with you all the exhibits that have been admitted during the trial. You let us know if you're, if that agrees with what you have in your notes and if there are any, um, exhibits that or or pieces of evidence that don't need to go out with the jury and they're really the reason they don't go out is because of the continuing witness rule. exactly now the continuing witness rule we have a chart in the outline we're not going to go through all these things but we we have a chart that says this is subject to the continuing witness rule this is not subject to the continuing witness rule but basically the idea is if whatever you're holding is testifying is providing evidence then it doesn't go out with the jury. If it is, it is what it is. If it's a photograph, then, then that does go out with the jury. If it's, even if it tells part of the story, that's fine. What doesn't go out are things like deposition transcripts, um, videotape recordings, because you can't let them look at a videotape in the back. They can ask to see it again in the courtroom in front of everybody, but they can't see it in the back. So don't send them the recording. They don't, they don't have anything to play it on. That's right. Things like written confessions don't go out. and uh, Statements or confessions, yeah, ri- things ri- like that. Written prior consistent or inconsistent statements. All of those things um, will not go out to the jury room. So just make sure you take the time and have make the lawyers take the time, frankly, to go through it and make objections, make observations, etc. And here's how you understand whether it's something that's likely to fall under the continuing witness rule. If... If having that evidence in the jury room would essentially be the same as having the testifying witness from the stand sitting in the in the jury room with them, continuing to emphasize their testimony, then that might be something that under that rule might not be supposed to be in the jury room with the jury. That's correct. So we get a note from the jury, Tane. And we are likely to get multiple notes sometimes. Well, let me back up and ask this, Wade. Do you tell the jury in your jury instructions that they can send you notes and ask you questions? I do not. Do you? No, I do not. But because they, but somehow they, I, the bailiffs usually tell them, I think. But, but at some point, they know they can communicate with me. So we receive a note. The first thing to do is get the defendant in the room. There are going to be some comments made off the cuff. Nobody's really anticipating them to be made. They're going to be going, oh, my God, I can't believe they don't get this. Defendant needs to be in the room. Agreed. 
So you get the defendant in the room. You say, hey, we're back on the record. I've gotten a note from the jury. The defendant's in the room. Prosecutor's in the room. Defense counsel's in the room. Lawyers, I'm going to read you this note. That Jury's you can, still in the jury room. <laughs> yeah. And lawyers, I am going to read you this note, and then you can come look at it if you want to see punctuation or whatever. This note says, blah, 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 blah. It is signed by R. Kelly, and it is uh, on today's date. And it is going to be made court's exhibit number, number two. <laughs> and I look at the court reporter, and she'll fill in the blank. Court's right. exhibit number three, probably at this point, because we had the the jury charge that I actually gave. And the verdict form. And the verdict form. So whatever. It, it's going to be – and then you fashion an answer to that question in the way that you think best. Now, I think that more often than – I, far more often than, than I do, you bring the jury in the room to answer the question. Well, let me back up. I read the question. I tend to, just because I am who I am, have already figured out what I'm probably going to do in it to answer that question. And then I will say, counsel, having read that question, my thought is this is how I would answer it. But I, I think you need to solicit input from both from counsel from both sides before you tell them, OK, this is how I'm going to answer the question. So um, you say, counsel for the state, here's how here's what I'm thinking. Counsel for the state, do you have any input on that or is there a different way you think I should do it? Counsel for the defense, what about you? OK, here's how I'm going to answer that question. And sometimes for my purposes, I'll write out the way I'm going to answer it. If I'm worried about how I literally know, the do. language mm -hmm. I, I Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. If it's a simple answer, no. <laughs> but <do laughs> or you, I cannot answer that question. But do you bring the jury back to I tell do. them no and I, then send them back? I do. And, and here's the reason that I do it. So anytime we have a question other than may we go home or maybe we may we go out to lunch now or something like that, I still tell the lawyers that I got that question. And Absolutely. I, and I still bring the defendant in and I still because there needs to be no communication between the judge and the jury in any form, in my opinion, without the parties being involved, no matter how mundane it is. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and I and I make it a I make it a copy of the for the record I put it up make it an exhibit for the record but anyway um, I bring the jurors out and I say to them here's you know whatever my answer is the reason I do it is really simple I can tell from the way they react whether it looks like I've answered their question or whether they seem to understand what I'm saying or not. The other reason is sometimes I may say there are some things in a case that I simply cannot answer for you, ladies and gentlemen, and this is, in fact, one of those things. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to go back and continue your deliberations, and they'll go back. I just do that because I think just having the bailiff deliver a note to them that says I can't answer your question doesn't convey to them that I'm sorry I can't answer your question or whatever it might be. So anyway, that's the reason I do it that way. Now, there's something I learned yesterday that you do that I – or don't do that I do, you don't bring the alternate back to answer questions? I don't. Now, you and know, back to when you gave me grief earlier, you know that all the other jurors are going to share with that alternate, if that alternate joins the panel, what the answer was. I, I do, but, but what the case law says about alternates, and even the charge that I give with respect to the alternate says... If at some point one of the jurors becomes incapacitated or disqualified for any reason, the alternate will be substituted in that juror's place and the deliberations will start over from the beginning with that alternate take uh, in that in that place. So 
what they're really supposed to do, although we all understand that all they're going to do is catch that juror up at some point in time, the law says that they're supposed to start over from the beginning. So if there are any questions that they have, they're supposed to ask them of us at that point. I, it's a technical it's a technical point, and it never come, amounts to much, but that's why I do what I do. So, folks, when you get a jury note and it says, Judge, we are 7 to 5. Which for, usually comes 15 minutes after yeah. you sent them out. Um, it would be regardless, let's go through that whole numerics thing. So if you have a jury note that suggests that the jury is deadlocked or it uses some similar kind of language, it is appropriate for the trial judge to inquire how the jury stands numerically, but the judge should make it clear that it doesn't want any information about seven for this five for that. I want to know if you're six, six, if you're 12 if you're 11 1 if you're 10 2 but inevitably that's really hard to do well let me ask this way so you get that note from the jury and they say judge we're you know deadlocked and we're never going to come to a verdict no numbers no numbers but it says we're deadlocked and it's been an hour (laughs) on a five-day case do you ask for the numbers at that point no, me no, no. If, me if I think that they have deliberated long enough, whatever that is, mm-hmm. to have reached a verdict, if they were going to, now I want to know the numbers. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know really why I know, want to know the numbers, because what am I going to do with that? Exactly. So, so in a civil case, it makes a whole lot more difference to get the numbers because they can take a less than unanimous verdict in a civil case by agreement. That doesn't happen in a in a criminal case. So I'm not a big fan of ever knowing the numbers. I've had a jury voluntarily tell me what the numbers were. I've had a jury tell me what way they were without me soliciting that. And I'll tell you what I did in that case. I made it a part of the record, but I didn't tell the parties what it said. Now, there's some case law that says I, that's an error. I, and it probably was. <laughs> we, I mean, we talked about that. Right. But I think that if they write down I – mean, and, and we've had this conversation several times because I think you had a jury right now and we're scared of the defendant or something. Yeah, sure did. On a murder case, and, a gang, gang case. And that has to be shown to the, that has to be shown to the parties. I think, I think you're right. I, I, I think that's unfortunate. I think there ought to be some discretion, but I do understand that, you know, that's communication from the jury and all of it should be. And I think it's clean, but I'm telling the, our listeners, you have to show all notes to jurors. I agree. Um, if the note shows that numeric breakdown, even though you didn't want it, you must show that note to the party, to the parties as written. And there's uh, some cases in our outline on that. Mm-hmm. If you are now to a mistrial, a, a, we have a deadlock note, and you are considering. Let, a, let me back up because I think this is important. If they send out that note, do you do something? The deadlock note. They say we're judge. We're seven to five. And, and it's, you know, an hour after they've gone into the jury room. You don't want to know what the numbers are, but they've given them to you. What do you do as a judge? Well, first of all, you go slow. This is Good where point. you have to get inquiry and, and, and information from the parties. Mm-hmm. And just because one party objects or doesn't object to declaring a mistrial doesn't really control anything. Remember, you can only declare a mistrial out of manifest necessity and mm-hmm. one of those manifest necessities is that you have a, that you are hopelessly deadlocked 
What were you thinking when you asked me that question? Was there well, a specific thing? Well, okay, so mechanically, here's how this happens. Jury's in the jury room. You're in your chambers. Lawyers are in the hallway or wherever the lawyers want to sit whenever we're waiting on the jury to reach a verdict. Mechanically, the way it happens is the bailiff walks in my office with a little tiny torn off sheet of paper with some really bad handwriting on it and hands it to me in my chambers. And it says, Judge, we're deadlocked seven to two. We can't reach a verdict. The cool thing is... Seven to two? Isn't that 12? Seven to two? I'm sorry, seven to five is what I meant. Okay. I don't know why I said two. Um <laughs> We have so nine. You, you we have nine. We have nine person juries. Yeah, in Cobb you County. can't ask yeah. me math questions. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, seven to five. The cool thing is, you got a minute. <laughs> you don't have to go directly into the courtroom right that second. You can collect your thoughts and say, okay, well. First of all, how do I deal with this? Second of all, it's only been an hour. What am I going to, you know, what am I going to do? How, what am I going to tell the jury? So just understand, you got a minute. You're not in a hurry. This is important. Do it the way you think it ought to be done. That's I, my point. I agree. Make a record, including your any observations you may have of the jury demeanor, mm -hmm. uh, the time, the length of trial. I mean, reiterate that you have thought about all of those things as you are making these these decisions. Now, the consent of the defendant to the grant of a mistrial in the case of a deadlock jury can be very important, but it is not controlling. And don't try to force somebody to consent because that's going to be a useless consent. Now, we've done with a deadlock. What happens when somebody asks for an Allen charge? The dynamite charge, as they used the to call it, or the jam. log jam charge. Yes. Um, you don't have to give it, first of all. Um, and, and a lot of people don't understand that. Even if the jury says they're deadlocked, you're not required to give the Allen charge. I had a jury that came out, like I was joking about a minute ago, an hour after they went into the jury room on a five-day criminal trial. They came out seven to two? No, no. <laughs> Seven to five. Never mind. Um, there were some abstentions. <laughs> but <laughs> they came out and said they were deadlocked. Well, they weren't deadlocked. I mean, we all know how that process goes. But they need to be educated. And so what I told the lawyers was, <clears throat> I'd like to bring the jurors out and tell them, look, this has been a long case. There's a lot of evidence to cover in this case. I'd simply like to ask you to go back into the jury room and continue your deliberations as previously instructed and, you know, give me an update later on, on whether you're progressing and whether there's been, you know, whether there's been any progress. Well, sure enough, two hours later, they came back with a verdict and I never even gave them the Allen charge. Mm -hmm. So uh, you don't have to give it right then. And you don't have to give it right then just because they said they're deadlocked or just because someone asks for it. One of the things that if you decide to give an Allen charge, use the pattern. pattern. Let's say that again together. Yeah. Use, use the pattern. 1.70.70 of the pattern charges. And the reason is, is that there are a lot of older versions that were good law for a long time. But they said these are the two components that you cannot do. One, this case must be decided by some jury. So there's no reason to think there's a better jury than you. Right? Leave that alone. Two, you can have additional expense to the county if we got to try this thing again. Leave that alone. So, in other words, use the pattern if you have to do a, if you decide to do a, an Allen charge. Consider 
the fact that it that it is a bit coercive because these people have said we can't get along, we can't harmonize, and you are sending them back to harmonize, and you're going to say too bad, keep it up. So just be aware of what that you know that it, it it does feel coercive, even if you simply tell them to continue to deliberate. But then they become they also come to the reality, my God, we might be here forever. Well, what I would say though is this. I wouldn't even contemplate as a judge declaring a mistrial because the jury is hung unless and until you've given them the Allen charge, sent them back into the jury room for a reasonable amount of time and let them at least attempt to try. That's what that charge is there for. It's the case where the jury says we're hopelessly deadlocked. They've deliberated for a reasonable amount of time and they have not reached a verdict. So let's talk one one quick time. If you have a problem for problem with jurors during your trial, make sure that you make a record of what it is you're talking about. That you had a juror problem and that something had happened during the trial. Make sure that you make a record of what it is that the defendant is aware of it. Yeah, um, I had a case one time where a juror made it really clear that she didn't want to be on the jury in the first place. Uh, She said she worked nights and she just uh, needed her rest and um, she didn't want to be on the, on the jury. Um, The jury, the first day that she came in as a juror, she put her head down on the railing and pretended to sleep. I had the bailiff go over and nudge her. Uh, I admonished her during a break that she needed to pay attention and that she needed to not continue to do that. The second day of trial, she didn't show up until about 10 o'clock when we started at 9 o'clock. Then she tried to do the sleeping in the jury box thing again. Um, She really wanted to go home. Uh, It finally got to be so bad, she clearly wasn't paying any attention, that I brought it to the lawyer's attention. They acknowledged that they had both seen it. I said, you know, I I can't in good conscience really allow her to continue on this jury because she doesn't seem to be paying any attention to the evidence that's being presented. And so uh, they sort of reluctantly, both sides agreed because of what they had seen. We put it on the record in detail, and then I brought her out and excused her. Um, But... I made her continue to sit in court for the rest of the trial (laughs) because I didn't want her to get what she wanted by doing what she did. So she showed up every day and sat there during the the trial in the back of the courtroom. Folks, we have in the outline a a whole section on what the trial judge is to do when you have a sleeping juror. What happens when... A juror has an honest and fixed opinion of the evidence and, but ref, and so refuses to deliberate. The judge can remove a juror who knows the witnesses and imparts inside knowledge that was not revealed during Vordire. All of those things that, that might happen with a juror are, are in the outline. Please feel free to look at it. It's section 55 on page 24 if you come, come across the one that we have prepared as a, that's effective July 21st, 2019. But also understand that when you replace a juror, you replace them with the first alternate. So it's going to be important to remember under your notes section, maybe, which an alternate was first, which alternate was second, etc. Because you have to go in order. And that's just the way that works. So this concludes section seven, I guess, of the overall outline on how to try a civil case, excuse me, criminal case. 
I'm Wade Padgett. I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council Superior Court judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. (laughs) But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience. And the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.